You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. In the name of Allah, most gracious, ever merciful, welcome, good afternoon. Assalamu alaikum, and may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all from Monday afternoon, drive time show, sitting in for unfillable shoes, brother Talib shoes, is myself, Kayum. And our regular Imam of the of the afternoon, and well, he's he's a full time Imam, but for Voice of Islam, Monday brother, mornings bro- and Monday bro- afternoons. Brother Tahir Khalid, good afternoon, Assalamualaikum. Well, you are do you do a great job filling in from Talib Sab. How are you this afternoon? Two interesting, very interesting topics. Yes, um, yep. I'm being told off uh, while we speak that uh, we 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 uh, we need to we need to play catch up today. We need to do we, we need to do justice to these topics. Um, the first topic is something that hurts everyone. Um, we've been talking about it for some time, um, and we're going to see and we're going to try and tackle. See if uh, we can uh, see if we can control um, what we're going to be talking about, and that is mm. fuel, fuel prices. prices. Yeah. Fuel prices. Fuel something prices. which is affecting. I'm old enough. I'm a everyone. dinosaur. I remember forty p a liter. Forty five p a liter. People used to have five liter cars, six liter cars. There was yeah. no an issue. Forty p a liter. I'm talking UK, not America. People think, "Oh, you think America?" No. And now it's two pound a liter. It's a it's joke. Just, it's absolute madness. It is. It is madness. That's like a, you know, thirty to forty quid increase in mm. a in a in a standard uh, price engine. It costs more than one hundred and five pounds to fill a fifty five liter family car with petrol, and one hundred and nine pounds with diesel. And uh, in March this year, the government said it would cut fuel duty on petrol and diesel by 5p per litre for a year. However, with current average price levels, the 5p reduction has long been cancelled out. And the situation will worsen the cost of living crisis for motorists and for customers as businesses will at some point will have to look past um, on their rising costs. Uh, and the UK consumer prices are rising at their fastest rate for 40 years Inflation hit nine percent in April and is expected to continue to rise this year. Yep, they're talking about eleven percent now. Yeah. Um, but before we carry on talking between ourselves, let's go to our first guest of the afternoon. We have Professor Sambit Bhattacharya with us, who is the head of Department of Economics at the University of Sussex. His research interests are in the areas of development, economics, uh, macroeconomics, and economic history. Good afternoon, welcome, Assalamualaikum, and peace be on you, Professor. Good afternoon. Thank you for taking time out and coming on to the Drive Time Show. Um, could you briefly um, explain about your book, Growth Miracles and Growth Debacles? How did the idea of this book come about? Um, well, the, this book explores um, root causes of economic expansion. So conventional economic theory associates economic expansion with industrialization, urbanization, etc., etc., this book explores factors that facilitate industrialization. So, for instance, factors such as geography, knowledge, social capital, uh, and institutions of commerce such as markets, property rights, uh, contracts, and so on. Um, So the idea for the book derives from the fundamental question in economic sciences, why some societies are more affluent than the others. Mm. Professor Sambit, I mean, if we're looking at the the fuel prices uh, at the moment, fuel duty is um, 52.95p a litre. That's 20, 28% of a litre of petrol. Wholesale costs are, um, it's accounting for around 42% uh, 
um, and the VAT is 17%. Why are these prices going up when wholesale prices are, I mean, we've, we've known in the past few months where reports have come out that fuel prices and, and those um, distributors have made billions in profits. Why then is this the the consumer price so so high? Well, so the consumer price is high because uh, uh, what we are experiencing is what we call uh, a, a tight uh, oil market or tight energy market. Um, so if you would want to uh, explore uh, uh, factors that 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 uh, um, led to sort of the current fuel price uh, spike. So I would list four factors. Um, the first one being um, significant reduction in investment in the energy sector um, since 2015. So if you recall, prior to the spike, energy prices were quite low. Yeah. So that um, did not provide enough incentive uh, to companies to invest uh, at that point in time. Um, the other thing is a bit more broad uh, and, and, and sort of, you know, uh, macroeconomic factors such as uncontrolled uh, monetary expansion uh, in the U.S. since 2021, so the year the current um, uh, administration took office. Now, monetary expansion, um, you know, in layman's terms means low interest rate. Now, low interest rate leads to higher asset prices and, you know, oil uh, as a commodity is not just sort of the, 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 the physical commodity, it's also a piece of paper, contracts being sold in, uh, in, in financial markets. Mm. Um, and it's an asset class. So low interest rate obviously increases uh, the price of the asset class. Then there's supply chain disruptions, um, which uh, I'm sure that you know, uh, your listeners are, uh, are very well aware of. Um, now, these supply chain um, disruptions are mainly due to um, Western embargo on Russian energy and Russian energy-related logistics in response to the conflict in Ukraine. Mm. Just, um, just, just on that, Professor, how much of our petrol comes from Russia? Um, well, Russia is kind of the third largest uh, exporter, th th third largest producer uh, of, of oil um, and, and very close to the other two, uh, other two being United States and Russia. So Russia's market share is quite significant. Forgive me, how, uh, how much, how much do, uh, petrol does the UK get from them? Um, well, that's a tricky question. So the UK government claims that uh, uh, they're not exposed to Russian energy. Yeah. Uh, UK sources energy from elsewhere. So but that means, that, sorry, sorry to interrupt. So that means that in your previous answer, when you said that the distributor and the, there's a disruption in delivery and distribution because of the war in Ukraine, but if we're not getting, if we're not being supplied from Russia, then why is there distributed? Why then there shouldn't be any reason for um, any disturbance in the delivery and distribution because we're not getting supplied from, we're not being supplied from them, from Russia. And secondly, um, you mentioned how. Um, because of the uh, because of the fact that they're they're, they're, they're obviously the distribu distributors are making a lot of money on this. Um, actually, do you think it's just um, it's just greed that's making them keep the fuel prices high? 
Um, well, probably, um, you know, part, part of it is greed. But again, uh, what you are seeing is sort of, you know, uh, the laws of economics, the laws of markets are, are being played out in this instance. So, you know, prior to your, pre- uh, uh, if I could refer to your pr- uh, previous comment, um, so oil is a global commodity. Mm. Um, so the reason why uh, supply disruptions of Russian oil affects global oil price is because, you know, like I mentioned before, right? So oil is not just the physical oil being uh, tra- to, uh, traded, the physical commodity. It's also uh, 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 um, an asset class. So in other words, um, it's a financial contract. So in a sense, um, when there's uncertainty in terms of supply, global supply, so uh, in the financial markets, oil as an asset, asset class, so the future contracts are traded, the price of these future contracts, uh, they get affected, and that in turn affects price for the con- consumers. Uh, pr- pr- uh, I'm not sure whether I'm, I'm making sense. No, no, you, you make perfect sense. I understand what you mean, that... Uh, um, you know, there is an issue from a global perspective. There is uh, um, uh, an issue of supply and delays in supply. But my question is more from from a UK perspective comparatively to our European brothers and sisters. Um, Germany, Italy, France, they've all managed to, uh, the governments have reduced uh, the, the duty on, on, on fuel. I mean, Germany have dropped it by 25, 25 pence or 25 cents. Um but we we don't seem to, and the government has talked about uh, you know that we're going to reduce it by five pence. Yet that hasn't shown up on um, at the at the petrol pump. Um, why is it that Europe is able to do these cuts and we are not? So so is that because the government um, is uh, you know there is a, a huge um, proportion of the of of the the cost of fuel which goes into duty to 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 the treasury. Um, so, so why is it that the government does have an element of control um, and yet they're not passing that on to the customer? Is there, I mean, what I'm asking is, is there a reason for that um, that we, Joe Public, don't understand? Um, the short answer is no. So it's a political decision on yeah. the part of the government. Yeah. It's not related to economics. Mm-hmm. But again, having said that, I will qualify that statement um, so in the short run, when consumers uh, are facing uh, significant pressure on their budget uh, due to this unprecedented spike in fuel price, um, so there's good sense in cutting down duties in the short run. However, um, in the long run, um, you know, this is not going to work mm-hmm. unless you solve the broader supply chain issues. Mm-hmm. And in order to solve that, I think, again, that's a political decision. Yeah. The government should seek peace um, in continental Europe um, rather than escalate the conflict. But that's a different matter altogether. Now, um, so if that is resolved, then I think you will see prices coming down and the supply chain issues are, 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 are gradually resolved. But that's a more long-term uh, um, do, do you think these fuel price rises are a short term or, or a long or, or something we need to kind of start budgeting for from a long term perspective? Well, like I said, I mean, you know, again, so this is very much on the politics 
side mm. of, 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 of fuel price. So if the government, uh, UK government and uh, Western powers collectively uh, choose to um, escalate mm-hmm. and, 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 and uh, continue with, with, with their, their, their current approach towards this conflict, then the conflict will linger on and uh, prices are likely to be high uh, now, going forward. Now, but getting away from the political, political side, government. getting away from the political side of, I mean, let's let's go back to the economics of what is happening. I mean, we're facing, um, uh, um, you know, a summer of discontent. Um, and uh, um, it's, it's one of the largest squeezes um, in household incomes for, since the 50s. And also, uh, sorry, please, yes. So you're absolutely right. So, I mean, uh, the short answer is that in the short term, mm-hmm. and what I mean by short term is uh, this entire calendar year, including winter, um, you know, it is highly unlikely to see uh, lower prices at the Bowser. And um, and as a, you know, I, I was reading a couple of days ago that uh, experts are saying that Britain will feel the pinch a lot more than other nations. Why is that? Well, that's because Britain is much more reliant on globalization than other countries. What does that mean? Um, I mean for, for someone like me, um, I mean, you're an economist. Um, to me, when, when someone like me who, who's not an economist, when somebody says we're, we're relying on globalization, what, what, well, is, what is that from a, from a layman's perspective? Good, 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 good question. So, um, as a country or as a society, we produce far less than what we consume. Okay. So, in a sense, we have to import quite a lot from elsewhere. So, in other words, we are reliant on supply from elsewhere mm-hmm. for our essential commodities such as fuel, food, etc., uh, etc. Et My final so question. As a result, any global price shock will affect Britain much harder. Than, 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 for example, the United States, which, um, which is a far bigger country, and um, you know, so, uh, so, its, its so, supplies are quite significant. So, so, the fact that we, as a country, are becoming more and more isolated from other nations is not going to bode well for us, does it? Um, well, I mean, you know, uh, Britain is a small country, and it relies on trade quite significantly. And in order to maintain its living standards and way of life. Uh, it needs to trade with other countries. Um, so if you know, if, if if you take that away, then obviously it will be difficult to sustain, uh, you know, this this level of living standards. And finally, Professor, um, we hear about words like windfall tax. Is that really uh, um, a, a short-term solution, or a gimmick, or is that really going to ease the cost of fuel for for laymen pe- people like us? It, it can be potentially a short-term solution um, uh, if, if, if it is used in moderation. But, you know, uh, like I mentioned before, um, so you know, if you overdo it, then in a sense you are taxing uh, producers, mm-hmm. so especially, you know, uh, North Sea producers of oil. Um, and as a result, they will invest less. And then that's can potentially create further shortages. So again, you know, uh, policymakers should base their decision on hard evidence and their modeling and what the consequences are. 
Um, and you know, once they have done that, then they should uh, they, they 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 should act 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 on it. So it's an option, uh, but it's not a magic bullet. Awesome, uh, Dr. Bhattacharya. Thank you so much for taking time out. I apologise for. Uh, the political questions, but unfortunately in today's day and age, our politicians are playing the roles or trying to play the role of of, uh, of economics, and it, and it blurs the line of politics and economics, but I'm grateful that you gave us time this afternoon and answered our questions. Uh, I wish you a fantastic thank afternoon. May peace be with you. Thank, thank you for having me. Thank you, sir. And that was uh, Professor Sambit Bhattacharya, who is the head of department of economics at University of Sussex. His research interests are in the areas of development economics, macroeconomics, and economic history. You know, it just what I'm the only thing which is coming to my mind more after this discussion is when Brexit was happening, and um, we know we rely on globalization. We 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 rely on the trade deals that we have. Yeah. So why was then this this phrase "no deal is better than a bad deal"? Because it's it was populist. You see, if you look around the world, populism is the the, the in thing. Um, if one looks at Eastern Europe itself, um, Poland populist government, Austria populist government, um, Hungary populist government, and with populism, I'm talking um, uh, not centre, but I'm talking centre right or even an element of far right. I mean, Hungary is openly far right. Polish is openly far right. They are far right. I mean, the politicians um, are openly saying they are. Austria has been one of the oldest um, in in recent years. Um, have had a uh, have had a far right element within their government. Um, if one was to forget about looking elsewhere, one looks at uh, France's recent elections. Mm. Um, you know, Marine Le Pen. Um, she got a significant part of the vote. Um, populism is um, um, uh, the, the 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 current political trend. And again, let's look at home. Um, what are we doing here? Um, even staunch conservatives are saying that what we are experiencing now is not conservatism, it's so populism. How far off would you say populism is from fascism? Um, you see, I, I think... Uh, because this is what some politicians have said that we are... I don't, I don't like to... I don't like to kind of... Uh, fascism is extreme. Uh, fascism, fascism is dangerous. Fascism is, um, is, is, is an extreme ideology, which is... I don't. Th I I personally, um, from my perspective, I do not think the current populism is akin to fascism. Um, no, I meant how far off are we from? We are considerably off. Um, we are considerably off. It w I would, you know, it, a lot of commentators out there would say, "Oh, we're we're not far off. We are we're quite significantly off." Um, um, it's uh, uh, you know, fascism is something that's. Uh, uh, I, I wouldn't want to even want to think about it. Um, um, populism at the moment, um, we are still within, we were still riding that wave of Brexit because nobody has really felt the 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 effect of Brexit because, or, or the pinch because of Brexit because the pandemic kind of took uh, or cushioned the blow. Mm. Um, but now we're getting over the pandemic and if one was to look at uh, the the labor leader today he talked about how he's going he, if he comes into power he will look at um how to 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 do a proper brexit um and what that means i mean he he's he's making a, a political statement there is that uh, once the pandemic is over and people will actually start to feel the pinch in their pocket because of the lack of supply of all the things uh, um, you know, Professor Bhattacharya was talking about that uh, affect our day-to-day -day life, and that's when people will 
say, well, okay, and and it's it's you know human nature to to look for blame. Um, and they won't be able to blame pandemic because pandemic is over and the effects of it, were, uh, the economic effects of it would be over. So the the only thing to blame would be either government policy or the, the, the current system we, we live in. Mm. Uh, and that's when I think that the, the, the notion of single market, of maybe re-entering single market will come again. And maybe we will start to, to develop links with uh, our neighbors, Europe. Um, because what's happening at the moment in Ireland, um, America has been very clear, and it couldn't have been more loud, that uh, should uh, the the, um, the disagreement with Ireland continue, they have no intention of doing any trade deals with, with the United Kingdom. Um, you know, um, Pelosi was, was very uh, vocal about that. Mm. Um, so if, if America is out of the equation and Europe is out of the equation and Europe is currently in the process of taking us to... Uh, to court because of the of uh, um, reneging on our contracts, um, who who do we have left? Um, and uh, and that's where the problem rises. And fuel prices and part and parcel of of that this equation that we talk about. Um, it, it's it's an element of uh, um, of of uh, the, the the problems that people are facing. But again, um, I I don't want to sit here and and uh, and criticize government, but government policy is is a different thing. Um, you know, we do need to take into account that the, the current government, in order to bail us out of a, a tricky situation, which was an extraordinary event, was the pandemic. Um, the government has taken on board two point nine trillion pounds worth of debt. That's mm. what the debt is. Yeah. Um, because the bailouts and and the cost of PPE, rightly or wrongly, who gave contracts and and uh, and you know who got furlough, who didn't get furlough, who got loans, who didn't get loans, that's another debate. Fact is, the government had to kind of dip into the the you know the loan situation and raise these these amounts to ensure that whatever economy we have in place, um, you know, it it was sustainable. And they did do that. They did do that successfully. Um, in in uh, um, f- from within the uh, from within the very limited parameters that uh, were allowed or or Brexit allowed us to be in. It's a short term success, though. At the moment, um, short term works. Unfortunately, short term works. Um, I I I I don't like it. Nobody likes short term solutions. Mm. But um, if you look at it from a government point, if you there's going to be an election in two years. So their policies are going to be what's going to win them the next election. So they're going to be think of how do I please my voter who's leaving me in thousands mm. where they will change their minds over the next 24 months because there's an election in, t- in two years. So they're not going to be thinking about creating policy. And again, populism, they want to be popular with people. So they will introduce populist. I mean, Rwanda, um, a lot of people, surprisingly enough, a lot of people think, oh, everyone's going to be against it. It's not. It's actually a very close race between people who think it's a good policy and people who think it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. Um, and, and that's where, um, you know, that's where the problem lies. But, you know, we, we it's a huge subject and, and uh, mm. we, we are kind of going off tangent from fuel prices. Um, the, in, you know, from a, from a socioeconomic and political perspective, what is the Islamic take on uh, on 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 dealing with the uh, with such matters? Because we always talk about Islam as a way of life, and you know, money matters, economics matter, 
I mean, um, and so many times we've sat here and we've talked about one of the greatest and the earliest economists uh, in this world was the second caliph of, uh, um, you know, mm, um, of, Islam. Of, of Islam was Hazrat Umar Farooq. Um, and, you know, if, if you were to read his, uh, his, his, his life uh, story, um, he was, uh, um, you know, from, from teachings from the Holy Quran, of course, his guidance, that's where it came from, and from the teachings of the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. But when it comes to implementation of policies on an economic basis, um, um, Hazrat Umar was uh, um, was was one of the original economists. Mm. What would what would be the Islamic take on on dealing with something like this? So Islam, like you mentioned, it gives guidance on all social, economic, political, cultural, and other substantial issues of life. And Islam has prohibited the wastage of all natural resources and their excessive consumption. God Almighty states in the Holy Quran, in chapter seven, verse thirty-two: "Eat and drink." But exceed not the bounds. Surely he does not love those who exceed the bounds. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, has said that the world is sweet and green, and verily Allah has appointed you as a representative and trustee over it. So again, essentially, uh, like this, we are in a way custodians, hmm. and we have to look after the country. We have to look after our land. We have to look after the earth, and in the, the the wealth and resources of rich countries. These are all being this this is a blessing from God Almighty and it must be utilized to fulfill the rights of his creation. Rich countries are thus expected to display a true spirit of sacrifice and help the weaker nations of the world to build solid foundations. Um, again in chapter 2 verse 281, And if any debtor be in straitened circumstances, then grant him respite till a time of ease and that you may that you remit it as a charity, it shall be better for you, Only if only you knew. So again, there, there's there, we see in a number of places how Islam has has provided solutions in trying to bring a balance in society, and one of the best ways to do that is through zakat, and zakat is something that we will be talking about uh, hopefully in more detail. Um, but we will go to our next guest, um, and we have with us on the line uh, Ludovica. Uh, Gaze, Professor Ludovica Gaze, who's an assistant professor in the Department of Economics at the University of Warwick, and she is an environmental and health economist. Professor Ludovica, good afternoon, peace be upon you, and welcome to the Drive Time Show. Good afternoon, thank you so much for having me on the show. A pleasure to have you here with us today. Um, we're talking about the fuel prices and how it's they've 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 risen so high, causing a lot of of course problems for for the normal consumers. Um, it's increased sharply because of the increase in the prices of crude oil and uh, and of course some people like Alaska some people say that Russians invasion has made things worse no doubt so so what measures should be taken in your opinion by the authorities both in the UK and worldwide to keep the prices low because like we mentioned Germany has still been able to and some other countries in Europe still been able to help take off the, the, the a big chunk of the price of of uh, of oil yeah so um that's a very uh, very good question i would i would say that um in my opinion you know as as the the uk and the world are trying to achieve net zero while weathering the fuel crisis um maybe the the answer should be to sort of keep the prices low because that will foster more use of fossil fuel. But instead, um, what, I would, what I think would be more beneficial would be for um, the UK gov- government to 
um, introduced a safety net of uh, transfers and uh, policies to help people who are struggling to pay their bills, um, if that makes sense. Mm. And, and as an environmental economist, are you satisfied with the UK government policies in terms of the usage of fossil fuels and what more could be done in this regard? Um, so my reading of the government strategy is that it's um, very ambitious and comprehensive on paper, looking at different sectors like industry, um, res- the residential sector, the transportation sub- sector. But um, as we know, that the, the devil is always in the details of how each policy is implemented. So, for example, I've been taking a closer look at the heat and buildings strategy. So this is the strategy that's supposed to help green the way that we heat um, our buildings, our homes. Um, and what I, what I think is that there's lots of good ideas in there. Uh, for example, subsidies for heat pumps. These are um, fuel-efficient technologies to, to heat um, our homes. But uh, the problem is that the, these subsidies historically have failed to reach um, those people that are more energy burden, for example, folks who are in rental homes. Um, and so I think that it will be very important to, to, to ensure that those people know about these subsidies and can take advantage of these. And this is just one example, but there's lots of uh, situations in which I think sort of the ideas have been great on paper, but then they haven't, um, they've sort of been delayed in, in being implemented. And one could, could say that, you know, if we had done more um, earlier in uh, reducing our uh, reliance on fossil fuels, right now we wouldn't be um, sort of as deep is in this crisis as, as we are. You mentioned that it's a very comprehensive policy on paper. And the key words there are that they're on paper. Mm. Isn't, I mean, everybody, I, I don't know anybody who doesn't want to save the planet. I don't know anybody because even deniers kind of back of their minds or during conversations, they they look at what's happening in and around the world or even within their own countries and they see, well, there's, there's got to be something wrong. But do you not feel that some of our policies are unrealistic um, in, in, in sense of implementation, not as in um, that there isn't a crisis, but we, we were looking for long-term solutions, yet... Um, which is good, but we we need some short-term remedies too, and nobody's thinking of those. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think that uh, you know the the challenge I've had is is very uh, is 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 a hard one, is a big one, and we need to to dream big and think big. Um, at the same time, um, sort of, we all need to um, you know pull up our sleeves and uh, and work in the short term as well. I think that there is a there is ways to combine that. Um, there is, uh, in fact, we need to act now uh, in order to, for example, you know, putting um, putting together policies like subsidies for innovation, um, like uh, you know, unfortunately, somewhat painful measures right now to ensure that people start transitioning away from. Uh, petrol and diesel cars, for example, that people start transitioning away from uh, gas. Um, well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm glad you mentioned that because at the last climate change uh, at the conference, India, China, they mm-hmm. were open about the fact that they, that 2030 is impossible. And they, they more talked about 2070. And only this week, 
Italy, Portugal, Slovakia, Bulgaria, Romania, all of them have said that the 2030 targets that they have uh, agreed to for um, um, effectively banning the sale of new gas and diesel cars, they want it extended to 2035. Because now countries are starting to look at... Uh, the impact that these changes will have on the economy as a as a, as a, on on a broader horizon and they're thinking well hold on this isn't something that they are able to sustain so this is this, and I'll go back to my original point that I agree with you that it is good to have ambitious goals but sh- shouldn't goals be set um in a way that they are implementable i mean this is this is a very good point and, and such a such a tough uh, sort of such a fine line to walk right because on the one end we want to push a bit we want to push the frontier right and so some things that might not look achievable today uh you know they're for sure not going to be achievable if we don't put any effort but if we put effort if we put effort in research and development if we put effort in electric in in the in building for example uh, the the grid and the capacity to have power stations for electric vehicles, mm-hmm. um, then those I think will become uh, you know those will become will become achievable. But it, it, so it has to be a there, I think there a little bit of leap of faith uh, if you allow me the the, of the term is needed. We love leap um, of faith. This is voice of Islam, and faith is is what we're all about. <laughs> right. <laughs> of uh, course, right. faith is very important in this equation. And, and I think that sort of, you know, to some extent, the, the COVID uh, pandemic has shown, you know, what is possible when resources get funneled in, into that innovation, right? Like, I don't know that it, before the pandemic, uh, you know, the, it was even foreseeable um, how fast that we could get to a vaccine that has saved so many lives, right? And yep. so I think that to some extent, you know, the problem with the climate crisis is that it's a long term crisis right like we're not uh we're not uh, affected in such high numbers in the immediate term like we were by the pandemic um and so that's you know that mobilization of resources is not uh you know is not yet uh been i think started but mm-hmm. but we need to think about the climate change crisis as uh you know as we thought about the pandemic and put you know put a lot of resources and a lot of effort and uh, a lot of faith to in in the fact that we now, can we can overcome it now you're an environmentalist uh, environmental economist and and i always ask a question which nobody has really ever been able to kind of or, or, or they kind of say to me this is not something that we should talk about which is everybody talks about the electrical revolution and some two decades ago we talked about the diesel um, revolution as in diesel was the best thing since sliced bread governments through billions and billions of pounds in telling people to go and buy diesel and now suddenly diesel is the devil isn't electric revolution a short-term measure because electric batteries lithium batteries are um if 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 truth was to be told by some experts more harmful to the environment than diesel is uh yeah i mean i think that there's definitely sort of the sense that um you know, unfortunately, again, I, I, I like to draw the example of, of the of the pandemic. You know, as we as we learn about about these uh, you know about these things, as we learn about uh, issues with uh, you know some of the toxic the, the toxic elements, for example, that we use in batteries, 
uh, right, um, we are going to, to maybe learn that they are not as safe an option as uh, as we hoped. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, um, again, the devil is in the details, right? Like we talk about the electric uh, revolution, but there's a big question, which is where does electricity come from? Right? Exactly, so exactly. If, if the electricity comes from uh, coal-powered, um, you know, uh, plants, then uh, that's not great. If the electricity comes from wind and solar, that's much better, although, you know, the, some people don't like to have wind uh, turbines uh, in their backyards, right? So I think there's, of course, there's lots of different, um, lots of different costs and benefits uh, that need to be weighed. And again, as the science advances, we'll learn more about the cost of certain choices. But at the same time, um, you know, again, I am somewhat optimistic that we can develop better uh, better uh, storage. I mean, of course, you know, there's big issue in terms of, in terms of, uh, you know, the, some of the rare earth metals um, and rare, rare, rare earth, um, uh, you know, substances and, and materials that are used in these batteries uh, and that, you know, are only found in very uh, few uh, countries um, and which can, uh, you know, lead to, um, to issues of resource extraction in, in those countries. So there's definitely lots of uh, lots of issues to balance. Um, uh, you you, you mentioned price. coal, and we're talking about fuel prices. And there's there's you know the, recently there was this um, uh, news story about how a lot of people um, have been left with no choice but to go back to usage of coal for fuel purposes. And again, we are talking fuel prices. Isn't the the situation got to a point where people? are having to balance to either use materials which are harmful to environment um, and, and you know, weigh that up against whether um, they're going to get heating. What what should people be doing? I mean, this is, this is a huge question. And, and, and you know, one thing that we, we haven't talked about is how um, some of these, uh, you know, if people are burning uh, wood in their homes to, to heat, uh, you know, heat up their homes, that's not only harmful to the environment, but that's harmful to themselves. You know, like, it is. Uh, exactly. It is. But this is the this is the point where some people are being left with a stark choice, which is not really a choice. They, you know, they some. You know, if, if if I have children at home and I have no means of heating them up, I will I will use any means necessary. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and so this goes back to, to I think, my, my initial point, which I think that we need the government to step in yes, with um, concrete help um, for families, as you mentioned, yeah. to, um, to weather this crisis. And, and again, to me, this is less about, OK, let's, uh, you know, let's uh, put a 30, uh, you know, 30p um, subsidy on on gasoline or petrol, yep. uh, but this should be more about uh, you know uh, families are not uh, are not uh, you know making it to the end of the month. We need to give uh, to give folks um, help in the form of transfers um, that are based on you know could be um, based on income, could be based on um, you know need um, assessed in however way. Uh, but I think that this this is you know this goes be- beyond uh, the, the the fuel um, crisis the fuel uh, price crisis. We know that there is also a food price uh, food crisis yeah. um, sort of in the world, and and so there's you know again I think that probably the best to me the best way is um, transfers 
um, that families can use to make ends meet. Now, just to finish off on a positive, um, the, 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 the head of the Amdi Muslim community, His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masur Ahmad, the fifth caliph of the Promised Messiah, may Allah strengthen his hand, he encouraged the elders of the community to become more physically, um, uh, more, more physically active and take up walking and cycling. And, uh, and uh, you know, the, the, the um, positive side of f- fuel, higher fuel prices is that m- people who aren't able to use their cars are going to have to resort to maybe London Transport, go cycling, or maybe even to walk to work. What's your take as an environmentalist economist on the positive? Uh, you know, there's always a positive out of negative. Um, so what's your take on, on uh, uh, you know, I would like to kind of finish on a positive. Uh, what's your take on on, uh, um, on something like that? I mean, absolutely. I think that, uh, you know, there's, there's a saying which is, um, you know, don't let a crisis go to waste. And so right now it's the time, again, to think big and to think about the future and to uh, take, a, you know, take advantage to some extent of this crisis and, uh, encourage people to move more sustainably, carpool, um, you know, use um, bicycles, uh, walk more. That's great for the health. That, that's great for the health of the planet as well. Um, again, I don't, um, you know, sometimes I, I think it's great if people take it upon themselves to change their habits. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is also the time for the government to invest in bike lanes, to, uh, you know, uh, support um, public transport and, uh, and make sure that, uh, you know, there's, a, there's good, uh, good bus systems uh, that take people where, you know, where they want to go and they can take people to work. So I think that that's uh, that's definitely uh, you know a, a good way as you as you as you mentioned to end on a positive note, which is that we uh, you know we should take action now. Wonderful. These are so high. Wonderful, wonderful. Ludovica Gazzi, thank you so much uh, for taking time out and uh, uh, answering our questions. I wish you a fantastic afternoon. May peace be with you. Um, thank you. You too. And that was uh, Ludovica Gatze, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Economics at the University of Warwick. She's an environmental and health economist. Um, um, and uh, while we were uh, discussing, uh, Brother Tahir came up to me and nearly beat me up because... Uh, I was like, where's, because where's he, he because, coming from? Because where's why is he quoting <laughs> His Holiness? And, no, I was I, like, I, I, and I'm, I'm like, okay, calm, calm down, chill. <laughs> Don't beat me up. Let's go and listen to what His Holiness had to say on this topic um, and uh, listen to what he said. Um, that uh, I quoted to our last guest. Size levels for Safed Dom and Sar. Do you have any exercise program for them? Ji, Huzur. How many um, of Safed Dom and Sar use bicycle? Huzur, we have 97 Ansar members who own bicycles. Out of 97, we have 32 Safed Dom members and 65 Safed Awal members. Achha. So, do they use their, their bicycles or only they have bicycles? Yes, Azur. Um, they regularly use their bicycles, and um, we also have cycle groups in each regions where we. Do they come to the mosque on their bicycles? Uh, not often, Azur. Do you have bicycles? This bicycle? hasn't been the you, case. You yourself have bicycles? Yes, Azur, I do. Acha. Myself, my wife, and my kids have bicycles. Acha, mashallah. How many miles do you do every day on your bicycle? Azur, unfortunately, I don't ride every day, but I ride at least twice a week. Uh, in terms of kilometers, how many miles? Twenty miles a week. 
uh, knows, or I don't think I do 20 miles, but I would do at least five kilometers in a week. Acha. So even I do more than you then. <laughs> I, I will try my level best, Huzur, to do at least 20 miles a week, as you wish. Acha. And uh, encourage other, other Ansars as well to buy bicycles and use bicycles. Eh? You, at least on, you, on, on short distances, they should use bicycle instead of using car and motorbike or something else. Huh? So you also play your Jee. role to clean the environment by using bicycle. Jee. All right. Next. Hazure Anwar may Allah peace helper also outlined. And there we had uh, His Holiness Hazar Mirza Masur Ahmad, the fifth caliph of the promised Messiah. May Allah strengthen his hand, encouraging the Ansar. The Ansar, the literal meaning of the Ansar is the helper. The Amdi Muslim Association are split into different auxiliary organizations. And His Holiness was addressing the Ahmadiyya Muslim Elders Association, which is 40 onwards. And Safi Avil and Safi Dom are two, um, two, two, um, two age categories within uh, the Ahmadiyya Muslim Elders Association, which is one is from 40 to 55, I think, and the other one is uh, 55 to um, 55 plus. Yeah. Um, or I'm sure somebody will call and correct me. Um, but uh, His Holiness was um, talking about encouraging uh, the elders uh, that they need to take on um, um, riding bike and walking a lot more um, because uh, it's not just uh, their own health that they're looking after but they're also having looking after the health of uh, the earth that God has blessed us with mm. and and this is all part and parcel of the teachings of Islam and the way of life that we always talk about that uh, you know God has given us a, 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 a beautiful earth um, and but man is is with this action is destroying um, uh, um, you know the, the the abode that has been given to us by God Almighty. I came across a tweet the other day um, about cycling okay. um, and how. Um, I mean, if I try and find it, it's going to be impossible. Um, let me see if I can find it, but I don't think it will be. It so will be possible. Are you, are you telling me that you are telling me you found a tweet that you that can't I find? saw? I saw a tweet. Um, a few days ago, you sound like Tweety Pie, and it was and just how so the tweet, just to summarize, the basic basically the tweet was like how, um, the, 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 the fact that many people are going to start using bikes and how it's the best way to go, really, is is going to really cause some some uh, top politicians it's going to make them angry because n uh, we're not there's no need for insurance there's no need for why isn't there need for insurance uh, in the sense of having insurance on the bike as, as such yeah insurance of there's no need for to pay petrol there's no need to pay any uh, road tax there's no need to pay any maintenance as such okay and that was something which will cause I will say nothing what, what do you think I, I, I look from you a, don't, you from don't a cyclist perspective, I look, I I'm walking, walk all the way, no risk. Cyclists, it's a different program. We need a couple of programs in order for me <laughs> to give my perspective <laughs> on cycling. But we are coming up to the hour. Let's conclude the show. His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masur Ahmad, the worldwide head of the Amdi Muslim community, demonstrated the economic principles of Islam during his address um, in Singapore. He said, Allah the Almighty has granted different resources and forms of wealth to different countries. Therefore, if one country does not possess the knowledge to extract or facilitate the use of its own wealth,
then those nations that have such knowledge and skills should assist them. Such help should be administered in a selfless manner without a desire to fulfill vested interests. Alliances or friendships with particular nations should not be determining factor in deciding whether to assist other countries. Favoritism of any kind should not occur. On an international level, if all the wealth and aid used to assist poorer nations was distributed in an appropriate way, then we would not see inequality and friction between nations increasing as it is today. He further states in conclusion, I should say that this is an extremely vast topic and I have only covered a very small aspect of one part of this huge subject. Certainly, there is an issue, there is an essential need for the world to pay heed towards fulfilling the rights of one another. The world has come to resemble a global village and so if we fail to discharge each other's rights then, then the unrest that has already taken root could ultimately lead to extremely dangerous and devastating consequences. If we look back at history, we realise that a major factor that led to the first two world wars was the prevailing economic situations. And this part of the world where you reside was also caught in its effect. If such circumstances were to prevail again, it would be extremely difficult to predict who would be safe and who would be in danger. We can only pray and present the facts and realities in front of everyone in an effort and hope that the world can be saved from all forms of destruction and danger. This is an this is essential so that we are not looked upon with anger and as transgressors by our future generations. This was given in the Mandarin Oriental Marina Square in Singapore on the in the 26th of September 2013. And he said this, what, nine years ago? And yep. it's still, I mean... We're seeing this into light now. We've seen economists, we've seen um, top of government officials saying how because of this economic crisis, we're on the footsteps of how World War One, World War Two started. I remember 2012, 2013, when His Holiness talked about the shortage of utility, shortages of gas, electric, um, um, and he said there will be warlike situation. Yeah. And he talked about there will be a time where there will be shortage of supply of basic essentials. And we're talking nine, ten years ago. But, um, you know, that's uh, uh, that's another program we can do. We are coming up to the hour and we're going to take a quick break and we're going to go to the news. But when we come back after the news, we're going to go on to another topic which hasn't been spoken about for a long time. Yeah. Which is Cuba or Cuba, as some people will say. It's Guantanamo Bay. Um, so do stay tuned. Grab yourself a cup of coffee. Or a, or a cup of tea. In fact, get yourself a toast as well. Put some butter on it. Uh, sit down and enjoy the news. And join us after a very, very uh, short break and uh, the news. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording. And lines are now closed. Welcome back to Monday Afternoon Drive Time with myself, Kayum, and Brother Imam. Tahir Khalid, we, <coughs> just before the news, we had just concluded talking about the fuel prices, something that affects us uh, on a daily on a daily basis. Um, but for this hour, we're going to be talking about something that uh, I suppose uh, mentally and politically and uh, as Muslims, it uh, it affected, it certainly affected me. Um, when uh, um, people and Muslims were kind of tagged mm. um, as terrorists and uh, they were shipped off, tied up, 
put in orange suits and thrown away in uh, um, I would call a dungeon um, far away um, and uh, you know that's the the way the stigmatization of uh, the Muslim the terrorist started from yeah this is soon after 9/11 and you know if if one was to look at even um, pictures and and uh, and films um, there's been un, un, uh, um, there's been um, a, a, a number of films that have been made for and against uh, this topic that we're going to be talking about and that topic um, is um, Guantanamo Bay um, some people may argue that committing bad deeds is inherent to human nature it is it is the precepts um, upon which uh, Christianity was constructed starting with the story of the fall as narrated in Genesis 3 to the idea of Jesus may peace be upon him uh, being crucified to redeem humanity humanity has always according to modern thought been interviewed with uh, intertwined with sin and subsequently crime in fact it has served as a focal point uh, of for much of how we see the world whether that's through legal lenses or literally sent lenses from Shakespeare's Macbeth um, to Dos okay now what's that word Dostoevsky's okay say that again Dostoevsky's whatever Imam Tahir Khali said it's crime and punishment to Kafka's the trial the concept of wrongdoing and retribution has been prevalent mm, but today there are so many intricacies in the way crime is dealt with and indeed apparent inequalities in terms of how the system treats different people so you must also ask what happens when people no longer believe in their justice system the detention center in Guantanamo Bay is notoriously controversial. Located in Cuba, it is a U.S. prison with maximum security. It was constructed in 2002 and was used to host militants and suspected terrorists of a Muslim background captured by U.S. forces in Afghanistan, Iraq and elsewhere. And the facility began became the focus of worldwide controversy uh, over alleged violations of the legal rights of detainees under the I regime. love that alleged yeah yeah alleged yeah. violations yeah. of the legal rights of detainees under the Geneva conventions and accusations of torture or abusive treatment by detainees by US of detainees by US authorities now just last week an afghan <coughs> national who had been detained in the prison for the last 15 years was freed as it was ruled that he had been detained unlawfully he was detained by U.S. forces in Jalalabad in 2007 and was held for 15 years without trial. This is just one story. 780 people have been detained in Guantanamo Bay since its opening. 733 have been transferred elsewhere. 36 now remain there and 9 have died while in custody. Two from natural causes and seven reportedly committed suicide. In an article published in January 2022, UN experts were quoted to have said, Guantanamo Bay is a site of unparalleled notoriety, defined by the systematic use of torture and other cruel, inhuman or degrading treatment against hundreds of men brought to the site and deprived of their most fundamental rights. Now, here on the Voice of Islam, we we discuss a number of different topics, um, <coughs> as as you 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 very well may be aware of. Um, now, the topic of 
justice and punishment is of course the underlying root here in this in this topic here but islam what islam says is that it's not islam is not only a religion but also a civilization it's a way of life uh, and social order based upon revealed principles principles given by god almighty himself the best principles imaginable Islam stands out stands out distinctly among the religions of the world in that its punishment and retribution laws are applied under exclusive rules and regulations dealing with matters related to obligations to God and obligations to mankind under no circumstances has man the right to punish anyone for non-compliance with the obligations to God so as a result of this distinct distinction Islam totally liberated man's obligations to worship from human intervention and interference just a, a reminded these are two aspects obligations to god the rights to god and the obligations and rights to mankind so with regards to the obligations and the rights with god almighty no man has the right to punish anyone for non-compliance with the rights of those who are not complying with the rights of god The Holy Quran states in chapter 2 verse 188 these are the limits set by God so approach them not thus does Allah make his commandments clear to men so that they may become secure against evil Now God Almighty considers to be considers to be his right to punish as he so wishes the offenders who associate something with him now these are apostasy blasphemy opposing him and his messengers maligning him and his messenger and obstructing his messenger in his prayer and in his mission because of the severity and perfidy of these offenses god almighty does not transfer the rights of dispensing justice to such offenders to anyone the prophets can't punish them for this no one can a punishment for this not even to his most beloved of prophets instead he tells the holy prophet peace and blessings of allah be upon him forgive them and turn away from them in the holy quran we also learn that one attribute of god is al-hakam the judge or possessor of authority of de- of decisions and judgment and as a result each human being must always remember that it is ultimately god's place to judge and not ours now you mentioned the 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 afghan who was uh, on the radar um in recent years in fact it was only last year um uh, a film was actually made called the Mar- uh, Mauritanian um and this was uh, and the Mauritanian is it's actually um based on the story of uh, um Muhammadu al-Salahi who was a Mar- Mauritanian man um who was held for 14 years uh, at Guantanamo Bay from 2002 to 2016 he was sta- he was kept there without charge um at the detention center Uh, which is um i mean even though it's in cuba uh, but it is a um united states military prison and yeah. one thing i hate is i've been to cuba and cuba is a beautiful beautiful place and the fact that cuba is known for this is uh, is a uh, it it uh, it bugs me but this 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 the story the of the mauritanian was uh, picked up by hollywood and uh, they they called it the mauritanian and it gives a true a full history of um the, the he was treated worse than an animal mm. and it was shown and it was depicted in the film that what actually happens here and when um you know in the end he he was freed in 2016 and he actually gave a speech to a judge 
um, in which he um, expressed his faith um, in God, but he also expressed his faith that the United States government will do him justice because a lot of the things that uh, he went through, the, the, the U.S. justice system just wasn't aware of. Um, and he said that his abusers might hold a grudge against him for now or forever, uh, but he does not hold a grudge against them. Um, and he was, the way they portrayed it, they didn't openly say it, but he was basically talking about from his faith point of view. He said in Arabic, the word for free and the word for forgiveness is the same. So he says he doesn't hold them. He, he forgives them. Um, and, and, uh, um, and because he believes in the concept and the, 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 the notion of justice. And even though he has been through 14 years um, of absolute hell and he was not charged with anyone because they never had anything to charge him with again it was just based on um, profiling and the way the name sounds mm. um, and 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 hearsay and people have were picked up um, and they were taken to this godforsaken place um, and there's still people out there and presidents um, who who kind of used Guantanamo Bay as a platform to say that if I was elected president and the first thing I would do I would close these mm. uh, these 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 horrible places Facilities, yeah. um, and, and namely at that time it was uh, President Barack Obama who said that if as if I ever become president the first thing I would do is close down Guantanamo Bay uh, and in fact it it, uh, it the number of prisoners um, still um, stayed the same and, and it's still open it's still open. Um, but let's go and talk to our first guest of the afternoon. We have with us um, uh, Dr. Matt Tidmarsh, who is a lecturer in who's a lecturer in criminal justice at the University of Leeds. His work focuses on the intersections of uh, penology, criminology and sociology um, with a current focus on the probation service. Uh, good afternoon. Welcome. Assalamu alaikum and peace be on you, Dr. Tidmarsh. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, thank you for taking time out and coming on to the Drive Time Show. Um, Dr. Tidmarsh, the calls for prison um, abolition are increasing. Do you believe this is a viable prospect? Uh, okay, is it viable? Uh, I think there's probably two questions uh, to answer there. Uh, firstly, is it viable? Uh, and secondly, uh, is it viable within uh, the current political climate? Um, so my own personal belief is that uh, mostly, yes, uh, prison abolition um, is um, viable uh, if we're talking about um, the release of uh, many uh, non-violent offenders that are in prison. I think you can always make a case for uh, some elements of preventive uh, detention for the most violent people uh, in uh, society, but that's not by and large what the prison population uh, in this country uh, looks like. So certainly I think, yes, we can move towards uh, prison abolition in terms of the release of large numbers of people who could be dealt with um, elsewhere. Uh, in the system. Um, but in the current climate, uh, no, I don't think that prison abolition is currently uh, viable. I mean, the prison population in this country is set to rise to nearly 100,000 people um, by 2026. Um, the government could be happy uh, to take advantage of crime uh, to try to win uh, votes, um, part of what criminologists call uh, penal populism. Um, and um, prison, I would argue, is also a fairly popular the public. Uh, so in fact, I think we would, um, while calls for prison abolition are growing, I would argue that we're probably moving towards uh, the other way in terms of the expansion and the intensification 
uh, of prisons uh, in England and Wales. Mm. Um, Dr. Tinmas, you, I mean, the prison system's purpose it is is to um, rehabilitate as well as keep society safe. To what extent do you believe these objectives are fulfilled? Uh, okay, I mean, yes, yeah, certainly that's what their mission statement uh, says about in terms of uh, rehabilitation, keeping people um, safe. Um, I think keeping people safe, uh, yes, certainly uh, in the short term, uh, if only for the obvious fact uh, that uh, people who are imprisoned uh, are going to find it considerably more difficult to bring harm uh, to the public. Uh, in other words, if you're incarcerated, then mm. uh, you can't continue to commit crime in the um, in the wider population. Uh, in the longer term, though, no. Uh, prison, uh, I think, is generally regarded as uh, being an expensive way uh, of exacerbating uh, complex people uh, and problems. So certainly uh, in the long term, I don't believe that the prison is the most effective way uh, to keep people safe. And it's certainly not the most effective way uh, to rehabilitate people. I think there are other much more viable options out there. So essentially, it's, it's failing a, a, a part of what its purpose is. Most definitely, yeah. And I think by extent, I mean, it's failing it for those individuals uh, who are in prison. And I think by extension, uh, it's also failing wider society because many people are released from prison uh, and crime uh, is what they know, uh, it's what they're used to. Uh, they're released without viable job prospects, um, potentially without homes uh, to go to. Uh, and crime becomes um, their life. Um, they get trapped in what's known as the revolving door uh, of the prison system, where you just come in and out for, for decades in some people's cases. Mm. Um, can you please explain the, the probation system and some of the pros and cons of this? Sure. Uh, so the probation service, uh, in the simplest terms possible, refers to the supervision of offenders uh, in the community. Uh, and there are two um, ways that somebody can end up on probation. Uh, the first way is uh, if you are sent to prison, then um, you immediately go under the supervision of the probation service uh, when you are released uh, from prison. Um, that's mandatory. It's not optional. Everybody must experience um, some length of probation once they're released from prison. Uh, so that's the first way that somebody ends up on probation. Uh, the second way is if you are convicted of uh, a crime that is deemed not serious enough to be sent to prison, but is deemed serious enough for um, some form of punishment, then you might be given a community order or a suspended sentence order or um, some element of um, unpaid work or community payback. Um, and uh, they are all managed uh, in England and Wales by the probation service. Uh, so they're the two ways that people end up on probation. Um, in terms of the pros, uh, it's certainly uh, cheaper and more successful uh, than prison uh, if we look at reoffending uh, rates. Um, I touched on this uh, a moment ago, but it also enables people to remain uh, in the community. Uh, yeah. What I mean by that is that it means people can keep their jobs. It means people can maintain uh, those important family ties, whether that's um, with parents or siblings or friends or um, children. Um, and uh, it means potentially as well that they can maintain uh, their housing. They might not lose their home if they get sent. They might lose their home if they get sent to prison for six weeks or so. Uh, it also spares them from the pain. Probation spares people from the pains of imprisonment. So what I mean by the pains of imprisonment uh, is the mental and the physical harms um, that uh, prison can bring about uh, that damage people uh, in the long term and potentially create more victims of crime uh, in the future. But that doesn't mean it's a panacea. Um, I mean, there are cons uh, to it. I'm not sure if this is explicitly a negative, but 
Uh, and again, something I've already touched on is that it's not a popular option uh, with uh, the tabloid media uh, and the public. Uh, and this means that it can be difficult to fully articulate the benefits uh, of the uh, probation service uh, in uh, political uh, debates and things like that. Um, and guess finally, the biggest negative is that it doesn't necessarily reduce uh, imprisonment. So there's uh, what criminologists call uh, the concept of uh, net widening. So this is a, essentially an attempt to divert uh, people from prison by giving uh, them an alternative to custody, such as probation uh, in the community. Uh, and sometimes, uh, if managed badly, then it can actually serve to filter people into uh, the prison uh, in the long run. And there's quite a lot of evidence that that's happened, particularly uh, in the United States and um, in many countries uh, in Europe. So as I said, it's not a panacea, uh, but I still believe that it's a much better option than sending people to prison. Um, Dr. Tidmarsh, um, you, you just mentioned the word populism, and we were talking, um, even in the first show, when we were talking um, about um, governments, the way, um, you know, it's, it's become a trend that policies are made on 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 populist perspective and populist behavior of what, and and you rightly said on on what tabloids talk about. But surely, um, criminal justice, um, delivering justice, the law, cannot be determined by a populist perspective, as the the ramifications on society as a whole would be dire if we were to go down the populist route. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't. Yeah, I don't disagree with um, anything that you've said. I think that while criminal justice is not entirely guided by um, populism, um, I think that uh, it's certainly um, what structures uh, politicians' responses to crime in a lot of senses. Criminologists talk about how, um, in the post-war period, so perhaps before the mid-1970s, criminal justice policy was insulated from public opinion. Politicians mm. strove to keep it out of debate and out of the media, uh, but that's changed in the last few decades, and I think politicians have realised that they can win votes by appealing to being tough on crime and tough on criminals, uh, for example. So I think that while we don't have a fully populist system, in a sense, it's definitely a big factor that influences politicians' decision-making. Politicians of all stripes as well, I should say. Now, now you talk about... Um you know, you, you talk about how sometimes punishment and in prison isn't always the answer. And I, I do agree. I, I think, you know, it depends on, on what the person or the individual has done. But, you know, a lot of people would, might be thinking, well, we're a, we're a faith-based channel and what are we talking about criminal justice for? But uh, just putting into perspective Islam, the way we practice um, is, is, is a way of life. And, and, and it's not about the individual, but it's about society. So how how does... Um, criminal justice um, when it makes its laws and when it applies its policies do they take into account the effect that it would have on society or does it just look at the crime and the individual and the victim or even if the victim does even come into the equation uh, I think that it definitely does take into account um, certainly the victim um, I think, yeah, by and large, as you say, uh, it's the offence that is considered. But, I mean, for instance, in court, uh, you have um, what's known as pre-sentence um, report uh, delivered. So this will be delivered by a probation officer uh, to the court, which essentially, uh, essentially um, explains the mitigating factors to the court as to why somebody um, has committed uh, a certain offence, be that a history of um, substance use or uh, mental health, um, or a lack of housing, um, all of these things. This is mm. something that's delivered to the court, and then they make a, a recommendation uh, to the court as to the type of sentence that should be um, used by the court in dealing with that particular uh, offender. 
Um, and uh, so I think part of that decision-making process is influenced by uh, the threats that that person would pose uh, to the public, uh, to victims. So the, all these stakeholders, I think what I'm saying is, are considered uh, in criminal justice. Well, see, that, that's the question. I mean, I'm glad you said that it's, it's a holistic approach that is taken. However, when a person does come into the real world, into the practical world, the, the politics of life and all these departments, education, housing, work, they, they don't work on a holistic basis. They're very disjointed. So shouldn't what the criminal justice system is using, like the, whole, the, the, the holistic approach, be kind of practiced in, in reality as well when a person does leave prison? Absolutely, yeah. I completely agree with uh, with what you just said. I think um, the system is very um, it's disjointed. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. That's what, what I was going to say. Disjointed. Yeah, the criminal justice system doesn't always marry up um, with um, the local authorities responsible for housing or the NHS or the the voluntary sector um, that um, deals with uh, mental and physical uh, illness and things like that. And you're right, there does need to be a more holistic approach. And I think that's where probation uh, is such an important sanction. Because yes, it cannot definitely. be the glue that brings all of these things together. Probation yes. officers have a measure of authority uh, over uh, the people under their supervision. It means that they can... Um, essentially force them to engage say with um, drug or alcohol treatment they can force them to get some kind of um, help for their mental health if so i may if i like may I, I agree with you but the fact that you i mean you know there'll be lobbies out there who will kind of uh, look to you know to criticize you for using the word force but even though in the equation and in the context you're using that word makes sense but but isn't that the problem that uh, this is where the populist um, uh, perspective gets kind of comes and takes over rationality. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, um, I think that uh, the populist approach uh, is is a powerful one, um, and yeah, to a large extent, it does take over um, from uh, from rationality. Now, if if just for the uh, for for our benefit, our listeners' benefit, your research um, follows the re um, following the renationalisation of the probation services in England and Wales. Particular, could you tell us about uh, the community measures can be co-produced by offenders and the benefits? Um, okay, yeah, so um, research, uh, for a bit of context, um, probation was privatised, or part privatised in England and Wales in 2014, uh, and I think I'm overestimating anything when I say that it went really, really badly. Mm -hmm. um, and it was renationalised uh, in June uh, 2021. Yes. Uh, and so that's what I'm currently looking at at the moment. I'm looking at staff experiences of that um, and uh, how we can improve and build on professional practice and things like that in probation. Uh, perhaps one of the most promising initiatives uh, in terms of how we can build on professional practice and move towards that more uh, holistic approach that we spoke about earlier yep. uh, is this notion of um, co-production. Uh, and this essentially refers to giving different stakeholders uh, a voice um, in uh, an offender sentence, if you like. So this could be uh, an initiative like restorative justice, for example, which seeks to bring together um, the victim and the offender to talk about the harms that have been perpetuated by the offender uh, so that the victim has a sense of justice and the offender realizes uh, the harm that they've caused to somebody. Um, so that's a great example, I think, of co-production, uh, bringing different stakeholders together. Uh, another um, example of co-production uh, and again tying into that holistic approach is that we're beginning to see uh, something called community health pop up uh, all over the country uh, and this refers to the co-location of different services in what are essentially community centers um, community centers sorry 
so this would bring together organizations like probation, um, welfare and benefits, the DWP or Department of um, Welfare and um, Pensions, um, mental health, uh, substance use, recovery charities. Uh, you put them all in the same building and suddenly they're all able to build relationships with one another. Uh, people on probation are, enable, uh, are able to, um, to access these services uh, incredibly easily, certainly easier than if they were very disjointed. Um, and it gives offenders uh, fundamentally a say in the kind of things that they access and when um, they access them. Uh, so yeah, co-production I think is, uh, is vital as we move forward in terms of embedding uh, a holistic approach to deal with the real world problems uh, or the politics of life, I think, as you put it uh, very well, uh, that we've spoken about already. Now, finally, um, uh, the topic that we're talking about is Guantanamo. And of course, we, the, the, hence why we talked about criminal justice. And over the decades, uh, you know, um, Guantanamo has always been a controversial. Um, um, it's been a controversial topic, um, and there's always been a, a lot of political and 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 professional and legal uh, perspectives that are given from across the pond. As as a lecturer in criminal justice, uh, if I, if if please forgive me for asking and. Uh, you know what is what is the take from 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 United Kingdom perspective um, of of the word Guantanamo, because um, it's something you know it baffles the mind when people talk about well somebody has been detained for fourteen or fifteen or sixteen years without charge, that is not something um, that uh, kind of sits um, well in the mind when 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 uh, th that we're talking about developed. Uh, first world nations um, but it's very rare that you hear uh, 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 criminal justice experts talk about it at this side um, of, of the Atlantic if I may what's your take on on Guantanamo yeah you're right I mean firstly I should say that I don't lecture on um, Guantanamo no no so it's, I, uh, of course it's far from my specialist subject but yeah you're completely right that um, it in many ways violates um, the principles on which um, British or Western criminal justice claims to be founded on in terms of um, fairness, the right to a fair trial, uh, the right to know how long you're going to be serving a sentence for, to be detained for. So uh, it violates those very principles on which our system uh, are based in numerous ways. And that makes it deeply um, unfair. And I think the perspective within academia, at least, is that that is very much the case. But of course, whenever we talk about criminal justice issues, uh, we're always talking about more stakeholders than just what academics think, aren't we? Yeah. Uh, and I guess part of this, again, filters back into what we've spoken about in terms of penal populism, uh, is quite simply that governments probably think that they can get away <laughs> with uh, imprisoning people without charge for so long because uh, they probably think on some level that people that don't care and the people in there are somehow undeserving of being in there, which is totally not my view. Um, but um, it's a complex issue, it um, is. and in my view, the sooner it's closed, the better. Wonderful. Thank you for uh, thank you for uh, your your opinion on that. And forgive me for asking that question. But <laughs> Dr. Matt Titmarsh, uh, thank you so much for taking time Great. out and Thanks coming on to our me. show. Um, I wish you a fantastic afternoon. May peace be with you. you. Have a nice evening. You too. Thank you. And uh, that's Dr. Matt Tidmarsh, who's a lecturer in criminal justice at the University of Leeds. His work focuses on the intersections of uh, penology, criminology and sociology with a current focus on the probation service. And, you know, one interesting point that uh, um, the, the Dr. Tidmarsh made uh, was when he talks about that, uh, um, you know, um, the probation service. I think the probation service is such a such a important um, um, tool in rehabilitation. And and it's it was privatized for such a long time. And, and everybody knows privatization is all about 
the the you know the bottom dollar it's all about pro- it's, it's all about profitability mm. so it's a good thing that last year um it was renationalized and and one hopes and prays that uh, um you know the the, the the holistic approach that dr tidmarsh talks about where all the relevant departments um do get together and look for collective and uh, and uh, um you know cohesive solutions which are not just beneficial for the um for for the individual but we have to remember um rehabilitation is also about protecting the society mm. um and and uh, you know it is important that institutes uh, institutions like um um uh, uh, the the probation service are given a higher priority than it is at the moment and and, and politicians need to kind of um seek um uh, you know put put give give a chair at the table mm. to academics as well who yeah. who look at statistics and data and and you know information and data gives you a lot of information and and i think they should be part and parcel of the yeah. looking for solutions also those who they understand the psyche of the individual That's right. how and when they can what causes them to go back into prison what causes them to be a reoffender yeah. all these things need to be looked at really Definitely. but i mean if we're looking at the purpose of punishment um the concept of punishment in islam may be deemed harsh by some but when the rationale behind it is is understood it becomes clear that it is not intended to impose baseless cruelty it encourages a path away from deviance and advocates for the reformation of society as a whole the objective behind islamic punishment is betterment of the individual rather than being slandered or tortured for their actions they are told why their actions are deemed unacceptable and why they must not be repeated if there is any perceived severity in any islamic punishment it is because it is meant to deter or prevent others from committing criminal acts so that a just and moral society can be established instead of a dark and evil one God Almighty states in the Holy Quran in chapter 2 verse 188 these are the limits set by God so approach them not thus does Allah make his commandments clear to men so that they may become secure against evil and in this verse God exhorts us to stay away from the limits so that we can secure ourselves against evil so the the concept of punishment in Islam is described with certainty and this verse highlights that the intention is not to be cruel or unjust If that was the case this verse would mention something about how punishment is deserved but rather it focuses on the protection and security of the individual and on, on the individual and society as a whole by that punishment being a, a means of deterring people from following the same route really well you know it's 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 strange that so many people who are um you know uh, who armchair commentators who've never been to Uh, Muslim countries around the world mm. and the number of uh, um uh, western friends i have um who have been to a muslim country on holiday and one thing they come back with and they always talk about how um it was a lot more safer they felt a lot more safer because they knew that there were certain rules and laws that were in place in society and and uh, that uh, uh, and they had uh, they felt reassured that uh, they would be protected and i have um, old school friends um, females who moved to dubai moved to morocco moved to turkey because they think the the um, that uh, the laws that are introduced um, into the the state 
from, and the state takes guidance from 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 the religion uh, and some of the, the 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 Islamic concepts that you the the um, the rules and the guidelines given mm. by um, God Almighty are implemented in these states in these Muslim countries and people do feel safe yeah. and they do think and when they come back home and they look at the 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 rise in crime and um, and the lack of um, the, the the lack of action by the state on people who are committing crimes and the victim is lost and victim is kind of forgotten in any crime um, it is is you know it, it's it, there's a stark difference um, and people do see that but it's a question of um, you, you know people actually having to go to, to and, and this is an experience which people have actually experienced when they've gone to um, Algeria Tunisia Turkey Morocco um, and, and you know the, these um, Muslim nations where a, a lot of Western people tend to go a lot um, for for their holidays, and they come back mm. with a different mindset. Mm. And yeah. Dubai, you know, Dubai, um, Abu Dhabi, and um, uh, Oman, and Bahrain, Kuwait, yeah. Qatar, you know, these these kind of places. They, they, there's, as I said, there's a lot of armchair commentators who talk about uh, uh, human rights and this and that and the other. Yet, um, go and ask the the, the people there in the country. You understand Islam once you've lived in that country. When you really, yeah, the protection uh, it offers you is is not found anywhere. Yeah, it, it, you know, it, it's the 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 justice and, and the rationale behind, and, and this is one thing I think, uh, and and I think there's there's a responsibility on Muslims to do that, that they, they don't explain the rationale behind uh, the just the, the the criminal justice system, um, you know, the, the, we we are doing that at the moment, um, and uh, th there needs to be more of this, um, um, uh, and this notion that. Um, you know that uh, people are not treated equally. Um, all all people need to do is listen to the first ten minutes of our show, and and uh, you know you'd think that we were talking about uh, a backward nation where there is no uh, there is no respect for the law, but uh, we were talking about uh, and we are talking about um, um, a location where people are detained for decades, um, and they're not charged. Um, with anything where there is no concept of criminal justice, there is no fairness, there is no justice, um, and and that is something that should not um, should not be allowed. You are listening to Drive Time with myself, Kayum, stepping in uh, for Brother Talib Man and um, your regular host, uh, Imam Tahir Khalid. We are discussing Guantanamo Bay. We're going to take a very quick break, and when we come back, we will carry on with the topic of the afternoon, which is Guantanamo Bay. So do stay tuned. Uh, and join us after a quick break. You're 
listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. With so many attacks on Islam and the Holy Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, let's set the record straight. He was a man of peace. He went through 13 long years of persecution for his beliefs. He was mocked and ridiculed, but he didn't retaliate because he was a man of peace. When he went to Taif to spread the message of Islam, He was pelted with stones until he was bleeding yet he did not retaliate because he was a man of peace when he migrated to Medina he established the charter of Medina allowing the Jews Christians and Muslims to live together in harmony with full religious freedom because he was a man of peace and after all the oppression that he faced when he returned to Mecca as a king he had the right and the power to punish every single one of them Yet he forgave them because he was a man of peace. The Holy Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam said that no white man is superior to a black man, no Arab to a non-Arab. Rather, everyone is equal. He freed slaves and taught to treat them as brothers. He did all of this because he was sent as the rahmatul lil alamin, a mercy for mankind. Indeed, the Holy Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam was a true man of peace. Hey, welcome back to the Drive Top Show with myself, Kayum, and brother. It is, it is, it is a, a hot uh, Monday afternoon. It's a long day. I've been, I had breakfast show this morning. But let's go on straight to our guest of the second guest of the afternoon. We have with us Imam Rabi' Mirza, who is no stranger to the show, who is a friend and an old comrade. I always call him an old comrade who used to sit across the across the table here. He's our third presenter. He, as well. he is. Uh, he's uh, yes, he is a third presenter. Um, Good afternoon, welcome, assalamualaikum, and peace be on you, Imam Rabi' Mirza. Wa alaikumussalam, and Jazakallah for that introduction. Imam Rabi', um, we are talking about uh, um, criminal justice, and uh, you know the, the topic is Guantanamo Bay, and uh, and you know the gist of the the topic is that uh, um, you know th- there is a, a severe absence of criminal justice. when we think and talk about Guantanamo um what is what does the 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 um um what does islam as a way of life and uh, you know we in, during the break we were just talking uh, we were just listening to a filler where we are were listening to how the holy prophet may peace and blessings of allah be upon him was a man of peace and and when he talks about man of peace he was talking about equality and justice could you kind of elaborate on on uh, on that this whole notion and the idea of justice in islam absolutely so <clears throat> the the fundamental reason why god almighty revealed the laws uh, pertaining to islam or the islamic laws or the islamic religion is to ensure that there is harmony and peace within society Now, as we know that of course uh, there are various governments around the world but their mandates their policies their laws they are also man made and they you know we also see within those laws that various um, ramifications are made various different amendments are made to either um, you know try to ensure that um there's ease created within the law or to bring some sort of restrictions and so on and so forth however 
when we look towards the commandments that God Almighty has revealed, because they are from God Almighty, and because God Almighty has created man, and He knows the best for man, therefore, if those commandments of God Almighty are enacted upon, if they're adhered to, if they're followed, then peace and justice will ensue within society. And that's why also the various governments around the world, they can also take um, note or they can also try to implement or mirror the Islamic teachings within their society. It's not that uh, the Islamic teachings are specifically limited to Muslims, but rather because Islam is a global and universal religion, therefore the laws pertaining to it also are of a universal and global standard. Now when we talk about justice, Mm. the Holy Quran has given a very beautiful principle for not only nations but within your own society as well. Islam has mentioned in chapter 5, I believe it's verse 9, that (coughs) if, you know, there's nations that are quarreling with one another for one reason or another, then one factor should be that justice um, should try to be upheld within that situation. And even the enmity of that nation should not allow you to act otherwise than with justice. And God Almighty has stated that the reason for this is because justice is something that is the most close or the most near thing to righteousness. So justice, in essence as well, it's also a particle of righteousness, is also a form of righteousness, is also a branch of righteousness. So once that form of righteousness is established within society, then you will see how peace um, and harmony will ensue. If that peace and harmony does not ensue, then obviously we know that uh, there will be chaos and there will be disorder. That's why when the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, when he migrated to Medina, we see that that is the actual first multicultural society that we see. Why? When the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, migrated, he was made the governor of Medina. And <clears throat> he made a treaty known as the Treaty of Medina. And so this was a covenant, a pact between the dwellers of Medina, whether they were Muslims, Jews, or whether they held any other religion. And <clears throat> all of them lived in harmony. The reason for this is that <clears throat> they all tried to abide by the pact and the treaty that was made. And furthermore, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, if any sort of issue arised, then the way that he would arbiter uh, or act as an arbiter within um, that, or to resolve that issue, was that if it was a Muslim, he would, uh, um, you know, he would uh, uh, tell the Muslim, um, or he would deal with the Muslim in the sense of the Islamic law. If it was a Jew, then he would ask that person, would you like to be dealt with in accordance to the Judaic law or the known custom law? And if it was someone else, he would ask them, what law would you prefer to be judged by? So that's the fundamental teaching that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. And if you see, it's such a beautiful and just law that 
the governor is asking you which way would you like to be judged. Mm. So this is that fundamental justice that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, breathed into society. It was not that because God Almighty had revealed the religion of Islam to him, he dealt with and judged everyone in accordance to the Islamic law. No. He judged in accordance to justice, and that is why we see that that was the first multi multicultural society. Of course, there were various different problems, um, as we know, uh, where some of the dwellers within Medina, um, they revolted, and, uh, you know, in one sense, um, they totally went against the treaty. So due to breaking that treaty then, they were punished. But fundamentally we see that this was the actual way that peace and harmony was established within that society. Mm. Very beautifully put, Imam Rabib Mirza. Uh, and thank you, thank you very much for coming on and giving this uh, this aspect of the in the importance of justice and from the example of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Thank you very much for coming on. It's been a pleasure talking to you today on the Drive Time Show. Thank you very much. Exactly. 0-0-8-6-8-7-7-8-7-8 is the number to call. We're going to go straight to our next guest, uh, Imam Abdullah Dibba, uh, who is an Imam of the Ahmadi Muslim community in Philadelphia. Uh, from the United States of America, Imam Abdullah Dibba, Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, and welcome to the Draft Time Show. Wa alaikum assalam, always a pleasure to be a part of the Draft Time Show. Thank you for having me. A pleasure to have you here with us today, Imam Dibba. Imam, we've we, we spoken just now with uh, Imam Rabib as well about the, the importance of justice um, and its importance um, in terms of punishment as well and how it is to be used. Uh, people commit uh, many people they commit such heinous crimes and injustices towards one another and, and, and people who do not believe in God they often question and they say that why did God let this happen why did he allow me to go down this path and commit such and such sin how does a believing Muslim reply to such a question yeah that's a very uh, common um, allegation or one can say lack of understanding of what uh, you know, life is truly about, and even if we look at it from a physical perspective, you know, when you consume food, if the food is poisonous, then it's going to have some sort of an effect on your body. It can make you sick, you know, it can make you very uncomfortable, and, and for some people it may even cause them to die. That's just the natural how your body reacts to food that is not healthy, that is not good for you. Similarly, our mental health, you know, we go through some things that are stressful and it can lead to depression, it can lead to anxiety, that's just some chemicals in your brain that will react to certain activities or certain things that are happening around you that's going to cause you to have a sort of a problem mentally. It's the same thing spiritually as well. When God Almighty created us, um, he put such a rules that he made us understand and said, this is how I want you to live your life so that you'll stay away from that, you know, that diarrhea that you'll get physically, that anxiety that you'll get as a result of mental stress. If you do these things, it will have an effect on your spirituality as well. So yeah. everything is interconnected that same way. So when people do something wrong, there are consequences to it. And that's just what God Almighty is saying. There's a definition between wrong and right. But God does not compel anyone to act a certain way. He's given us sets of rules to follow, and some people just decide to disobey and, and do things that are in line with what they want. And that's what becomes injustice for someone else. If you only care about yourself and you don't care about somebody else, that's 
injustice to that person. And that's what leads from a small scale to a large scale. And we can't blame God Almighty for that. And, and it's interesting that people who don't believe in God, when it comes to blaming God, all of a sudden God exists, yeah. they can blame Him. Mm. Right? And, and when it's all good, they say, no, God does not exist. Yeah. So, so they really have to define for themselves what do they mean. Do they stand in a position where God does exist and He's unjust, or He does not exist at all? Uh, and then once that question is answered, we can go to the next level by saying that those who believe in God tell you that he says himself that he's not unjust at all. He's just. Mm. Imam Tibab, I mean, a lot of people, they sometimes point fingers at Islam and Sharia law. A lot of commentators do this as well about the punishment which is presented in Islam for certain crimes. For example, in regards to theft, it is to amputate the offender's hand. How then in the 21st century can these punishments take place and how do we go about them now? How can it be justified to for this punishment to take place? You know, if we pick and choose different punishments by different laws, different rules, uh, it becomes very complicated. You know, there are a lot of punishments up to this day in the 21st century in the most advanced countries in the world that people can look at and be like, that's very barbaric. If you look at the Guantanamo, Guantanamo Bay, for example, mm. um, you look at, and I'm not saying whether the, the, the crime that they committed is wrong or right, based on the gravity of the crime, then sets of lawyers sit together or a, a court, jury or whatever, and then they decide this is the punishment that's befitting. And that's the exact thing that happens in Islam as well. People think that there are sets of rules that are written down that says when someone steals, no matter what, just grab the person and cut their hand. That's not how it works in America, that's not how it works in, in South Sudan, and that's not how it works in the Islamic you know, code of conduct, in the Islamic Sharia. That's not how it works. What Sharia is, is um, a path to life-giving water. Sharia tells you how to live your life to please God and to live in a society where you, please, you, you are good to everybody else. That's what Sharia means, literally. So when somebody thinks that Sharia means there are sets of punishments that are written down for every wrong thing that you do, we just open the book and say, well, the person stole, cut their hand. That's not how it works. There are people that are dedicated to understanding the depth of Sharia, looking at the circumstances that has gone around, whether it's with a crime or whether it's something good that somebody does, and in weighing out um, the reasons why that was committed, the environment that they were in, the mental state of the person, the circumstances that led to all of that, and then a decision can be made whether the person should even be punished or not. The same way that it happens in the courts, with the lawyers, with the, with the judges. That's the exact same way it happens in Islam. The same way that it would be ridiculous for someone to say that, well, any time that somebody does a shooting in America, the person has to be killed. Well, we know that there are some shootings that happen as a result of mental health. Mm. And the doctors are able to look at that, certify that it's because of mental health, and then the court says, since there is mental health problems, this person cannot be punished by putting them in jail. They have to go and get treatment, right? Mm. That's the same thing that it can happen in, in Sharia law, but there's a lack of understanding. But the biggest thing here is that Sharia law ensures, Islam ensures that all the circumstances are put in place first. Everyone is served with the basic amenities of life first. And then if despite all of this provision, somebody goes out of their way and steals just out of, you know, doing wrong and doing all sorts of injustices, then there is a punishment that can be meted out for that wrong that that person did. But it doesn't always, or it doesn't have to be cutting of the hand or, or doing all these other things that people think it is. Mm. So there's a lack of misunderstanding to a great degree. Mm. Imam Dibba, we just have around two minutes left. Um, and uh, just the last question that we have, I mean, in the Holy Quran, chapter 55, verse 10, it states that, so weigh all things in justice and fall not short 
of the measure. How can we in our daily life and in society uphold justice? I know it's a very difficult answer to answer in a question to answer in just two minutes, but what, how can we uphold justice in all levels of society? I think that, you know, what the Holy Quran tells us also, just to be very brief, is that people who believe have been instructed to abide by the principles of justice, even if it has to go against your own self or your relatives or your loved ones. So if this basic principle of justice is meted out, to the extent that we say that, well, when I see that this is the just thing to do, if I have to speak the truth, even if it means I have to be imprisoned, I'm going to stand up for the truth. So if I have that moral authority, if I think I have the moral authority to stand up for justice to somebody else, Islam says start with yourself. If you can do it with yourself and your loved ones to stand up for justice, even though they may be put in uncomfortable situations, that's a good place to start with. So what the Holy Quran is, tells us to look internally, start with ourselves first. And if we do that, then we'll be able to go by what Islam says, to weigh all things in justice and not, short, and not, not fall short of the measure. But if we fall short of the measure ourselves for our own selves and be selfish, then you know, it, there's no way we'll be consistent with practicing that. Beautifully put, Imam Dibba. Thank you very much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you again here on The Drive Time Show. And we hope you have a great day. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. We are coming up to the end of the hour. Um, we have been talking... Uh, uh, we've been talking Guantanamo and before we were talking about fuel prices, something... Um, that have been very interesting topics uh, that have been uh, being discussed uh, in mm. society in general, on individual uh, and societal basis. Um, as I said, we are coming up to the end. Uh, Imam Tahir Khalid, any last thoughts for the last 30 seconds only? Oh. I repeat, 30 seconds. See, I was going to read out a quote of the, the founder of the Amni Muslim community, which but it might take over 30 seconds. And yeah, we, well, we don't have, and we well, don't have enough, enough time, time, unfortunately. But yeah. he does say that um, with regards to this, that um, God has promulgated such uh, human rights for social peace to prevail and that one group of humans must not oppress another group and create turmoil in the world. So all the rights and punishments which are there concerning property, life and reputation are in fact mercy towards mankind. With that, I'd like to thank our producers, Ifat Mirza, Barida Ghaffar and Dure Samin Mirza, for, for today's, uh, both of our topics for the show this afternoon. I want to thank our various guests who came on to the show, gave us their time and uh, and shared their thoughts with us. Thank you to Imam Tahir Khalid, as always. Thank you for um, for joining um, and uh, allowing me to be your co-host. No, thank you for thank coming Thank you to all of our pleasure. listeners uh, for, for listening to us. Um, please forgive any shortcomings uh, on our part. Please remember us in your prayers until we meet again. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all.